Um, and Amuti is going to come and bring our reading this morning. Uh, so I will welcome up Amuti. Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you may remember a wildly successful recent TV series called Line of Duty, and it starred Adrian Dunbar in the leading role of Detective Chief Superintendent Hastings. And if you've ever tuned into any of it, you'll also remember that when the going got tough and dark for Chief Superintendent Hastings, he was regularly in the habit of using an Irish expression, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Well, those words are a very appropriate title for our reading. And not just because they are the central characters of it, but also because this reading from Matthew chapter 1 takes us into the dark and difficult side of Advent, rather in contrast with last Sunday's reading from Luke chapter 1, which was all about Mary and the Annunciation. Now, last Sunday, Pat preached about the Annunciation <clears throat> so joyfully, so happily, and so originally, partly perhaps as a result of <coughs> being energized by paternal pride, that his sermon might just as well have been entitled Jesus, Mary, and Phoebe. <laughs> now, although Phoebe is a most imaginative addition to the cast of characters in the Nativity story, she's actually a rather good addition because her safe arrival in this world and the happiness of her parents reminds us that Advent is a wonderful lead-up to a joyful conclusion on Christmas Day. But we need to know that along the way to that glorious conclusion, there were dark mysteries, and some of them almost needed the forensic skills 
of a detective chief, chief superintendent to unravel them. Now, to be fair to uh, Pat in his euphoric sermon last Sunday, he did make a glancing, if telling, reference to Mary's dark problem. And I think his words were, he said, the culture of those times made it difficult for her. You bet it did. Just as we unpack uh, now St. Matthew's account, let's try to unpack those difficulties which 2,000 years ago and uh, indeed today are the case still of spiritual warfare. I hope this doesn't make me, as I go into these difficulties, sound too much like a hard cop after last week's soft cop. Um, but the Advent story um, is a story of light coming into the darkness. And we need to understand some of that darkness in order that we can rejoice to the full in the light. Now, Matthew's gospel is often called the Jewish gospel by New Testament scholars. And that's because its author time and time again refers to the law, the customs, the culture, and the practices of first century Judaism. And these were often in head-on collision with the teachings and life of Jesus. And the first sign of this collision came when Jesus was still in Mary's womb as a fetus. Just look at the opening verses of our reading. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, on the screen or on the page, those words read rather dryly. But let's just use our imaginations for a few moments to try and actually capture the drama and probably the trauma that lay behind those words. They begin, Mary was pledged to be married. Now, under Jewish law, this was a commitment far deeper than a, mo a modern engagement. It was a betrothal, a year-long period before a marriage in which the couple were regarded as husband and wife, even though they lived apart and even though they did not share any physical relationship until after the wedding. And a betrothal was so binding that it could only be terminated by a legal divorce. It was a solemn mutual commitment governed by the law. In a light-hearted moment, let's just imagine the scene when Mary tries to explain her astounding news to her betrothed partner. Joseph, are you sitting down? Uh, I've got something I need to tell you. She begins perhaps symbolically rubbing her bump. I'm pregnant. After hearing those words, Joseph's world must have fallen apart. Was his pure, innocent, virginal bride actually saying that she'd been cheating on him? Joseph must have been shocked, shattered, and heartbroken. And not only had Mary broken his heart, she had also broken the law, which was an extremely serious matter because the law, and it's there in chapter 22 of the book of Deuteronomy, was brutally harsh. A betrothed virgin who had been sexually defiled was condemned by the law as a criminal adulteress who had committed a crime 
punishable, wait for it, by death. And although that death penalty was only occasionally enforced, in primitive rural areas like the hill country of Judea, stonings to death of women who had broken their betrothal vows did indeed sometimes take place. And that could have been Mary's fate if Joseph had exercised his right to have her publicly shamed and charged with a crime. So what might have gone through Joseph's mind when he was given his, this shocking news that his betrothed bride-to-be was pregnant? We're not told, but I think it's pretty fair to speculate that he would have been deeply hurt, deeply upset. He might have used language much rougher than that of Superintendent Hastings. He might have demanded to know, who the heck is this Holy Spirit guy who got my beloved Mary pregnant? Joseph is the first of many skeptics of the virgin birth, and he perhaps deserves our sympathy, not least because the Holy Spirit then was such a rare, almost unknown figure in the Old Testament. And now we're told that Joseph was faithful to the law. That's maybe a backhanded compliment um, because legalistic Jewish old-fashioned lawyers come out of the New Testament pretty badly. They come up time and time again as the scribes and the Pharisees always nitpicking over some arcane part of the law which, for example, they seriously argued made it Jesus uh, wrong and indeed law-breaking to heal a crippled person on the Sabbath day. But Joseph was sort of reared in those disciplines, as was everybody who went regularly to the synagogue and heard the teachings of Jewish law. So probably he might at least have considered going down that legal route of punishing Mary. On the other hand, we know from later passages in the Bible that Joseph was a kind man, a just man, a caring man. And so he did what all judges should do of situations he tempered justice with mercy. And that verse 19 tells us, because he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Well, you might say in the story, so far, so sad for poor old decent Joseph. He, after all, is the loser in this apparent menage a trois that he's just heard about. And he must be feeling devastated. At least he's not going down the route of uh, punitive uh, legal punishment. But he's still shattered. And so what does the heartbreaking uh, Joseph do? He heads off for the divorce courts. But then, lo and, lo and behold, a surprising twist comes into the tale. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. Let's pause here to have a diversionary riff about angels. Do we believe in them? What is their relevance to the first advent and to advent now, 2022? In that first advent, angels were hopping and bopping all over the hill country of Judea. An angel appeared to Zechariah to tell him that his elderly wife Elizabeth was going to be miraculously pregnant with John the Baptist. And then, of course, the angel Gabriel uh, appeared to Mary to give her the astounding news that she was going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit with Jesus. And now here we've got another angel 
appearing to Joseph in a dream to reassure him that this unlikely story, as he must have seen it, of Mary being pregnant by the Holy Spirit was actually true and that it was in accordance with the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah. And then just looking forward a few days, more and more angels keep appearing in the Advent and Nativity story. A whole host of heavenly angels appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth, saying, glory to God in the highest. Let's do our best to emulate them tonight at the carol service when we concluded with Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And then in another reminder of the dark side of Advent, an angel makes a second appearance to Joseph. As related in the second chapter of Matthew, this angel warns him that he must flee to Egypt with his baby son Jesus to escape from Herod's paranoid slaughter of all the newborn babies in and around Bethlehem. And so one way and another, angels play a large and important role in the coming and the birth of our Lord. Do these angels just seem like mythical, fanciful figures to us now? Because many of us have, in our time, taken part as children in a nativity play, or at least watched a nativity play, we sometimes have an image of angels as uh, figures wearing gold wings, wearing white robes, halo around their heads and twanging a harp. Well, maybe, maybe not. But there are other passages of scripture which suggest that angels may be around us in the here and now, even though they may be unrecognizable in more earthly attire. Just hearken to these words from Hebrews chapter 13, verse two. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, perhaps we have entertained angels without knowing it. In other words, what that verse is suggesting, that angels may be around us, but unrecognized. And perhaps we can sublimely agree with that. Anyone who's had a bad spell in hospital and been well looked after starts to say, nurses can be angels. And carers can be angels too. Um, in my family life, we had a wonderful carer called Jessie, who comes to this church sometimes and be here tonight, who nursed and looked after my wife so well that I thought she had some of the qualities of an angel. And when I go into suggestions like this, I'll bet that some of you may say, Well, I've encountered an angel, but maybe I didn't actually recognize her or him. And of course, angels are not limited to nurses and carers. They may be our protectors. And this is a tradition uh, long enshrined in English literature and in tradition and so on. In Shakespeare's greatest play, Hamlet, the most dramatic moment of act one comes from the ghost appears on the battlements of Elsinore. What does Hamlet say? He shouts at the top of his voice, angels! and ministers of grace defend us. But his appeal for protection is well based biblically. Just look at the great psalm about protection, Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in your hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So angels are God's protectors. 
as well as God's messengers. So it was these angels that persuaded Joseph to accept Mary and then and then a baby, and then later to protect them from Herod and his tyrannical massacre. If you believe God's words, as it is set out in today's reading, we can perhaps see that angels are not folkloric or fairy tale ornaments on a Christmas tree. Holy Scripture, historical tradition, and human experience all suggest that angels can be as real to us as they were to Mary and Joseph. And those same angels or their successors may still be around us today as our protectors and as the deliverers of God's messages to us. I believe in angels and I hope you do too. Now just getting back to Joseph, there are two more rather powerful reasons why that message from an angel may have changed his mind, changed his attitude to Mary's pregnancy, and changed his plan to divorce her. The first is that the angel said these words to him in our reading, Matthew 1, 23. And I quote, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, of course, the prophet here is Isaiah. He's already been in our Advent readings, will be tonight again several times. Unto us a son is born. He prophesied a voice crying in the wilderness, the voice of John the Baptist, would tell the people of Israel to prepare the way of the Lord. And it's the same Isaiah, also some 500 years before the birth of Christ Jesus, who is saying that here's another even more sensational prophecy about him. It was that a virgin would give birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel. That title, Emmanuel, is far too illustrious to have been meant to apply to a man. It translates as God with us, and as a title, it gives no doubt that the prophet was referring to the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. His coming was a long-expected event, according to Jewish religious tradition. And Joseph, a devout Jew, would have certainly known about it from synagogue teachings and readings from the prophet Isaiah. As for the element of the virgin birth, this is a cause of much skepticism. But to those of us who are willing to believe in the miracles of the Exodus, the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of the resurrection, and many other miracles recorded in the New Testament, surely the miracle of the virgin birth is yet another example of God's miraculous powers. Now there's one other line in our reading which should catch our attention, just as it must surely have caught Joseph's attention. Matthew 1 verse 21, the angels tells Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Of all the teachings of Jesus and of the Christian faith, the most revolutionary, the most attractive, and the most rewarding to our sinners is that Jesus came into the world 
to forgive us our sins and save us. Well, it was Joseph who got this amazing news first. In fact, all the good news in our reading comes to us layer upon layer in a variety of ways from a variety of sources. God speaks to us through Holy Scripture. God speaks to us through angels. God speaks to us through dreams. God speaks to us through prophecy. And he speaks to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But what is he trying to say this Advent? His Advent message is simply that he is coming. He is coming to give us all hope, to guide us, to inspire us, to lead us, and to change us so that we become his people. Question, will we welcome him into our hearts with joyful Christmas commitment? Or will we shrug our shoulders and turn away saying in secular style, sorry, no room at our inn. This is the choice between the light side and the dark side of Advent. Let us pray that we will choose to be on the side of the angels, on the side of God the Father, on the side of God the coming Christ child, and of God the Holy Spirit. Amen.